Hello, everybody. My name's Tim Perko, and you're listening to I Believe. Now what? Hey, what's going on, everybody? Hope everyone's having a wonderful one out there. Let's just go ahead and address this really quick. Yes, there is an echo in this room. I usually record in my wife's closet, if I've never said that before, because there's lots of clothes and it dampers the sound, and it's really good at just holding that sound in. But I had to move locations over to my computer room just for today, so this is not a permanent thing, so don't worry. And the other good news is you're not going to have to hear this for very long because I'm actually going to play you a sermon that I preached this Sunday. Now, this is actually kind of a funny story, and I want to share it before we start getting into that sermon. So if you're not tracking, I have been preaching at a small Baptist church about 30 minutes from where I live, randomly on different Sundays. Uh, Normally the way it goes, oh, by the way, please keep that church in your prayers. They are looking for a pastor. That's why they have different people coming to speak for them. So I've been preaching there for the past six months on and again, off again, um, whenever they you know, ask for me to come down there and preach. That's usually the way it goes. They send me a message. They say, hey, Tim, can you come preach for us on this day? And I will say yes, or I will say no, depending on my schedule, since I am in the army, and sadly, I do have to work weekends sometimes. Well, they sent me a message a few months ago, or probably about a month ago, and they said, hey, what are the dates you're able to come speak for us? So I told them, and I never really heard anything back from them. So I just assume my schedule didn't mess with their schedule, whatever the case may be. All good. Well, last Saturday, my wife and I were having dinner with some family friends, and her mother, uh, my friend's wife, her mother actually goes to the church that I preach at. She said, oh, mom said you're preaching on Sunday. And I'm like, I I am? So uh, as soon as dinner was over with, and mind you, this is 1030 at night, so I couldn't really call the elders of the church, and I don't want to wake them up or anything, and confirm am I preaching or not so when I got home I just took to my notes and I just started writing notes based off of a specific passage in the Bible that I've had on my mind for a while and this is totally different from my normal routine of when I am preparing a message when I'm preparing to preach usually I I have I have a very set schedule you know time to pray over the message I have time where I do my studying, time where I have to check the context, time where I'll go through my Greek lexicon, times where I'll check my concordance and my study notes and read other commentary, maybe check out a few other sermons just to make sure I'm not too far off topic from very trusted people. And this was totally outside my norm to come up with a sermon on the fly. But I went ahead and I just trusted the Lord because I had to, I had no other choice, unless I wanted to cancel out, which I was not going to do. I'm not going to tell these people I'm not preaching for you because I wasn't prepared. I just had to fully trust the Lord to just give me the words to say. And sure enough, the Lord pulled through. I was able to go ahead and give this sermon. And honestly, it was one of my favorite sermons, I think, that I've ever preached. Now, I do want to say, when you're listening to it, there is one specific passage that I kind of botch up a little bit, and I had the right thing in my head, but for some reason the words that came out weren't correct, and I didn't really realize it until I was listening to the sermon again. I was like, ooh, did I just say that? And it was specifically referencing a verse in Matthew where Jesus said, take my yoke upon you, because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
for some reason, I said, uh, well, you'll hear it in the sermon, but I think I said something along the lines of, Jesus said he'll take our yoke for us, which was not what the verse actually said. And I'm preaching there at that same church this past Sunday, so I'm going to go have to go ahead and have to correct myself and tell them, hey, look, what I just said there, that wasn't correct. The analogy was still good, and the analogy still holds true with the proper verse. It was just I misquoted the verse. So I wanted to get that out of the way right off the bat because one of the most important things, especially when you're uh, talking to someone about the Bible or preaching or anything like that, is the abil- your ability to recant what you said or say, hey, check this out, I got this wrong. And that's what I'm doing now. So without further ado, we're going to go ahead and get into this sermon. And I did not even come up with a title for it. I guess if you want to call it, you, want it, you can call it Jesus as Lord. All right, well, here it is. And I hope you enjoy and this just edifies you and encourages you to just open up your Bible and read. And especially try to look for things where maybe I said something wrong, so that way you can go ahead and let me know. All right, here's the message. Dear Heavenly Fathers, we come to you today, Lord. I pray that this message is just exactly what you want to be said, Lord. I pray that all the words that come from my mouth, Lord, are exactly what you want. And that we are just in total submission to you, Lord. And your word is what guides us. Thank you so much for all that you do, Lord. Jesus name we pray. Amen. Okay, so today I was thinking of what was a good topic to go over, especially as we're getting ready for Christmas. One of the things that God's kind of been laying on my heart was what do we usually, you know, call Christ? What do we usually call God, especially when we're praying? Call him Lord, right? Say Lord. Christ is Lord. What does that truly mean to call Christ Lord? If you would, just stand with me as we read our first opening scripture. And we're going to be in Romans 10, verses 9 through 10. And today, I'm, I'm honestly, I'm going to be flying through a lot of scripture. So don't feel the need to you know, follow along as you can, but there's a lot of it. Uh, so as we're going through, by all means, though, please, if you can keep up with it, do. If you can't... Uh, Write it down, double check. As I always say, don't just take my word for it. Read what the Bible says. God could be speaking to you, you know, uh, and who knows if somebody's coming to talk to you, you want to make sure that the exact words that they're reading is from the Bible, all right? So always double check that. But Romans uh, chapter 10, verses 9 through 10, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, A person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. You may be seated. Thank you. This this verse, this section of verses right here, these two verses are honestly, I think, the most simple, downright explanation of, hey, how do I get saved? It's very simple. It puts it so simple. Confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. But one of the things I think that gets so lost uh, in today's world as, as, we, as we go through is what does it mean to believe and confess Christ as our Lord? Is it just a word we say when we pray? Is it just something we've grown up in so we always say, yes, Jesus, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. 
What does it mean to truly believe in Christ as our Lord? Well, first I want to look at what Jesus had to say on this. And I'm going to be going into Luke chapter 6, verse 46 through 49. Here, Jesus is saying, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Now, if that ain't a convicting verse, I I don't know what is. I remember the first time I read that, I was... Like a, like a heart punch to me. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? He continues on to say in verse 47, everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I will show you whom he is like. He is a man building a house, dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when the flood occurred, the torrent burst against that house and could not shake it because it has been well built. But the one who is, just as Jesus always does, he, he goes from the positive side. Now he's going to show you the wrong way, the negative side. But the one who has heard and has not acted accordingly is like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundation and the torrent burst against it and immediately collapsed. And the ruin of that house was great. So the key I want you to stick on, like I said, in verse 46, why do you call me? Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say. In other words, we don't come to God on our terms. We don't say, okay, God, I saw, I heard your message. I like it. I'm going to go ahead and accept that forgiveness that you're offering. I'm going to do it my way though. I'm going to do it my way. I think I know best. I can go ahead and live my life the way I need to. Just as long as I know you're going to forgive me in the end, it's fine. I'll go ahead and live my life. And that's completely wrong. We don't come to God on our own terms. We submit to God on his terms. That's what this call was saying. That's what Jesus meant when he said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what the things that I say? This is reiterating a verse that I've said in here many times. I always go back to this verse because this is the verse that changed my life. In Matthew 7, 21 through 23, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. The key is right there in that verse. But he who does the will of my Father will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, have I not done this in your name? Have I not done that in your name? I did all these wonderful things in your name. And he'll say, depart from me. I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. There's a difference between just saying Christ is my Lord and actually acting and submitting to Christ as our Lord. We're talking about lordship salvation. You know, is believing in God just to, you know, we get down on our knees, we say a prayer and all of a sudden we're saved. Or is it truly believing it in our hearts, submitting to Christ as our Lord and Savior. I think a big problem is the way that some churches have had, had, had conducted themselves. Purest intentions, purest intentions. They want to bring the light of Jesus to the world. But what they do is they water down the message because they want to get more people inside the church. And I get it, you know. You want to bring more people in so they can hear the truth. But the problem is, is now we have so many people walking around. And I, I was doing some studying, some researches of the bigger churches around here, some places up, you know, over in Baton Rouge and New Orleans. And I was listening to some of their messages. And man, I tell you what, it is the most 
watered down version of the gospel I've ever heard in my life is moralistic preaching. Like they're preaching good stuff and they do great things. Don't get me wrong. I was looking up lists of stuff they do, how they give away toys for Christmas to kids and they help the poor and they help the wood. They do the things that, you know, churches should do, but they're not feeding the flock. They're more worried about numbers coming in, you know, come in and, and they're not feeding them what they do. And, and, and through all this, through all these churches, I noticed we're, we're, we're starting, I'm going to paraphrase a, a pastor that I really respect. His name is Vody Bogum. He said, I'm tired of hearing this sissified, needy Jesus preached among us. He's, he's saying, he's like, we're, Christ is our Lord. And I'm going to keep focusing on that word if you haven't noticed. Lord, Christ is our Lord. What does that mean? Our Lord isn't some sissy. Our Lord isn't somebody who's just over, oh, oh, Tim, if you just come to me, I need you in my life. I need this. I, I, I want you in my life. Yes, he does want us. But guess what? He's not, his heart's not breaking over me. He's going to break me first. That's what our Lord is. Our Lord's the one from Revelation who's going to come down from heaven riding a white horse in a cloak dripped with the blood of his enemies. King of kings, Lord of lords, written down his thigh. That's my Jesus right there. And he's going to come and destroy the evil. He's not this sissy, long-haired, you know, blonde-haired, blue-eyed person that so often gets represented. Who knows what our Lord Jesus actually looked like? In fact, the Bible says there was nothing about him that made him desirable to anyone else. In other words, I take that as he looked like an everyday person in that time frame. You know, so we, we, we watered down the message so the masses would come and make Jesus feel cool. It's OK. You know, don't feel bad about your sin. We want you to come into the church. We want you to do this. And these church, like I said, purest of intentions, probably they think that they're helping people. But when they don't preach on submitting to the Lord, when they don't preach on coming to God on God's terms, not our own terms. Then we have essentially a bunch of people walking around that believe that they're Christians, but they're not. And this is who my heart goes out to. It really does. Because I used to be one of those people. I probably told you that, you know, shared many portions of my testimony. I used to be like that. I used to live like the world and say, it's okay, Jesus is going to forgive me. Jesus even goes on to say in John chapter 15, verse 10, he says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Not say this prayer and do whatever you want and I'm still going to forgive you. It's no, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just if I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. You see what Jesus was doing he was setting the example for us. He, he said right there at that second part of the verse in John 15, 10, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide as his love, he's saying, if you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love. He was setting the example. He was leading from the front. He was what we should follow. Now you might say to yourself, and I know I seem like I always round back up on this topic, Tim, that sounds a lot like church legalism, doesn't it? You're saying we have to keep these commandments not a free gift? Well, I'm going to get there in a little bit. <laughs> uh, Jesus, I want to just reiterate the point again. What Another thing Jesus had to say on this. Matthew 16, verse 24 through 25. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must praise himself and follow me. Is that what it says? 
Absolutely not. That's not what it says. He must deny himself. It said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Or in other words, the way I read that, take up your cross and be willing to die with me. Be willing to suffer with me. I don't know if you ever remember reading through the book of Acts. Book of Acts, the disciples, after Jesus, you know, the gift of the Holy Spirit was just uh, put on the, the, the apostles of the early church, and they were out preaching in God's name. The Pharisees brought them in, whipped them, beat them, had them tortured. What did they do when they left? They rejoiced that they got to suffer for Christ's sake. They got to suffer with Christ. I, that, I, I wish I could say that right now. I don't, you know, hopefully I'm best, I got to have faith that God will give me the strength if that day ever comes. But they were rejoicing that they got to suffer for Christ's sake. That's amazing what Christ did for us. I mean, that alone was such an amazing testimony to the early church in Rome. I don't know if you know this, but like the early Christians in Rome, they were so despised, they were tarred, put up on a stake, and lit on fire and used as torches to light the streets in Rome. That's how much Rome hated Christians back in the day. Even to the point where they would put them in these Big, you know, the big Colosseum they have in Rome, they would put them in the center of it. And then they would let lions go at and feed on them. And they wanted to show, look, this is what happens when you follow Christ. But the funny thing was, the exact opposite was happening. They, the people in the crowds, saw men and women, children, put in that stadium to be fed the lions and saw people that were fearless. They, yes, I'm sure they were nervous and scared about the pain that they were going to experience, but guess what? They had no fear in death. And then people in the crowds, and this is all in ancient writings. You can go back and look at it. The people in the crowd saw this and they were like, I want what they have. These guys are facing certain death and they're singing hymns or they're standing there completely fine with almost joy on their face. Because they know they're going to be with Christ here very shortly. That's the type of joy I want in my life. Amen. And that's the joy we get when we submit to Christ as our Lord. Now to paint this picture of Christ as Lord, I want to I draw an analogy. This might be old news to most of y'all in here. But I think it's good to go ahead and rehash on it. I want to draw this analogy. And I heard, I didn't make this up. I heard this a long time ago. And I wish whoever drew this analogy, I can remember the guy's name. I can't. But it stuck with me the first time I ever heard it. And it's never left my head after that. So picture this. Imagine you're back in the medieval days. Knights, round tables, kingdoms, castles, all that stuff. Okay, You're back in those days. And a rebellion breaks out in the kingdom. There's a rebel army and they don't want to be part of the kingdom anymore. So they're fighting. They're doing whatever they want. They think they can rule the kingdom better than the king is. So they break out a war, war breaks out, everything's going crazy. People are just doing what they want. Now the king, he sees all this, and mind you, this king is powerful. He can send his knights out there and crush this rebellion in an instant. But the king is a merciful king. He doesn't want to do that. So he wants to extend a chance to these people. So he sends out a decree to all the land and says, if you just come to my castle, you'll bow to me, submit to me as your king, I will forgive 
your sins. I will forgive this war that you started in our kingdom. Well, most people hear it and they say, oh, I don't, I don't believe it. I don't want to do it. I don't care. I'm going to do what I want still. And they continue on with the war. But some people, they heard that message. And this war hasn't been going you know, too good for them. They're poor. They're living a horrible life. Things aren't going great for them. And they go, you know what? I'm going to go over there. So they go over to the castle. They see the king. They bow to him and they say, we have faith that you will forgive us by coming here. By coming here, we have faith that you're going to forgive us. And the king forgives them. Now there's one other outlier I want to go over. Picture a man. He's a little skeptical. So he goes to the castle to submit to the king. And he tells the king, oh, yeah, that's, that sounds great. I want to be forgiven of everything I've done, you know, in case this war turns out to be bad and we're not doing the right thing. I want to be forgiven. So he accepts the king's kindness and he forgives and the king, you know, the, the king's forgiveness. And then he goes back out to the rebel camp and keeps fighting the war. Does that really sound like he submitted to the king's rule? Absolutely not. Do you think that when the king captures this person, do you think that person is going to be forgiven? I don't think so. And this is an analogy of someone who claims Christ as Lord and Savior of their life, but wants to live in the unbelieving world and do the things of the world and do what the world deems to be the best things, not what Christ wants us to do. It's tough. It's tough to hear, but sadly there are people out there like that. And like I said, there's many churches that are going around not directly saying this. I don't want to, uh, to bash any other brothers and sisters in Christ. Like I said, best of intentions, but they're doing it by not preaching on submitting to Christ, how sin is wrong. We need to feel bad for our sins. So I want to ask again, what does it mean to confess and believe Christ as Lord? James chapter four, verse seven. I'm going to fly through some of these, but these are just some great examples. Submit therefore to God. That's what it said. Submit therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. The call of God is so much more than believing the intellectual facts about the Bible. That's how I used to be. You know, I... I was raised as a Christian. I was raised in an amazing Christian family with a Christian mother and a Christian father and believing brothers and sisters. And I believed all the intellectual facts of the Bible. Did a flood happen that covered the whole world? Absolutely. Did Christ die for our sins? Absolutely. Is there a God? Absolutely. Is Jesus the son of God? Absolutely. I believed all that. Anything in the Bible, I believed it. But I wasn't submitting myself to that. I tell people, yeah, I'm a Christian. I believe all that stuff. I'm not a great example, though, so don't, don't look at me. Don't look at me for that. You want to talk to somebody else. That's not submission, you know? And I, to the point where I had to go back and tell people when I finally understood I wasn't a Christian yet, that I had to go back and tell them, hey, look, the things that I used to say, all that, that was wrong. I was wrong. I just had a very good talk with a friend last night. Um... 
who's telling me about how he used to give the worst advice to people. And as soon as he became a Christian, he felt so convicted that he had to go back on the phone and call every single person that he ever gave bad advice to and say, I was wrong. You know, I was wrong about God. I was wrong about this. Most of them thought he was crazy, but there was actually a few people that were really touched by that and ended up changing their lives because of that testimony. They wanted to get what he had. Like, what is making you call me and want to do this, you know? They wanted to get in on that lifestyle. So like I said, the call to God is so much more than believing facts, but total submission to God. And before I was saying, you know, doesn't this sound kind of like legalism? Like, we have to do all these rules. We have to follow all these laws. Doesn't that sound like the old church law? Yeah, it might. Until you start understanding what the work of the Holy Spirit is in our lives. First John chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. Whoever believes that Jesus Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father, loves the child born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and observe his commandments. Read that second verse again. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. And then here's the key, verse three. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. In other words, his commandments aren't hard. Why are they not hard? It sounds like some hard stuff when you go through and read the Bible. You got to deny yourself. You got to suffer for Christ's sake. You need to pick up your cross daily and die with Christ. This sounds like some hard stuff, right? No, it's actually not. When you're truly saved, 2 Corinthians 5.17, this is why. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away and behold, the new things have come. Now, all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. We were reconciled through the blood of Christ. We were purchased at a price. We were purchased at a price. And what did it say in verse 17? We are a new creature or a new creation. If we're a new creature, a new creation, the old person's dead and gone away, we're not going to have the same mind frame anymore. So why is it not burdensome? Because we willingly want to do the things that God wants us to do. We want to love God. We want to follow his commandments. The Holy Spirit has changed us so much in a way that we are disgusted by our old lives, the old sin that we used to commit. You know, and I'm not going to say we're not going to be perfect. You know, we're still living in this fleshly sin. Paul was very clear about it when he wrote in Romans 7, you know, my spirit does the, you know, I don't do the things that I want to do and I do the things that I don't want to do. And it's because my flesh and my spirit are at war with each other. We're living in this fleshly body that longs for things of the earth while our spirit inside, our very spirit is changed. Our mind is changed. So yes, we're still going to stumble. We're still going to trip. But the key is, is do we feel bad about it when we do? Do we feel convicted? Do we feel horrible about what we just did? That's the difference. That's what happens when we become a new creation, a new creation. So we no longer want to do the things of the world, 
but we want to do the things of God. We want to do God's will. That's why it is not burdensome. You ever notice when you, uh, have you ever had a job that you just absolutely did not like? I know I have. There, my, my last duty station up at JVLM, uh, Washington, I, I was working from 05 in the morning until about, oh, geez, sometimes 19, 20, 100, sorry, 7, 8 o'clock at night. It was miserable. I'd come home, I'd have enough time to eat, and I'd sleep. And that was about it. Uh, I was miserable. And every morning I woke up, I was like, oh my gosh, I don't want to go. I don't want to do this. But I had to do it because I knew I had to make a paycheck. I had to provide for my family. Um, It was my responsibility to do this. Now, if we look at our Christianity like that, can we truly say that we're of God? Like, ah, got to go to church this morning. All right. (laughs) You know, we're up. I didn't read my Bible today. Let me let me go through a verse of the day. It'll take two seconds. You know, you know I, I'm not. No, actually, I am trying to make people feel bad. I guess. <laughs> you know, it, th- this is this isn't how we're supposed to view our Christianity. You know, it's not like our job that we go through. Or maybe you're so you know fully find so much joy in Christ that you actually enjoy your job. You know, I'm kind of at that place now because it's not as uh, burdensome for me the job I'm currently in. <laughs> but anyways, digressing on. What what I'm trying to say is we should want the things of God. We should want to read our Bible. We should want to be around other Christians like we are right now. We should want to talk about God. We should want to pray to God. All these things because we're a new creation, a new creature in Christ. So why? Why would we want this lifestyle for us? Well, obviously the answer is easy for every single one of us who's a believer. But I think Philippians 2 verses 8 through 11 really kind of bring that together. Being found in the appearance of a man, he, talking about Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So like I said, that is exactly what I was talking about before, how Jesus set the example. Jesus became obedient to God, even to the point of death, death on a cross. And that's how we need to be for Jesus, obedient. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And for what? For the glory of God. All of this that we do when we submit to Christ as Lord of our lives, we're doing it for the glory of God. Because ultimately that's everything. Even God's love for us ultimately points back to him in glory. The fact that he took, he, he took sinful people like us. I thought if you attached a movie reel to my brain and played every single thought that I have ever had throughout my life, I would be so embarrassed And I would probably never be able to come back here. You probably wouldn't want me back here. But the same could probably be said for every single one of y'all. We are in this body of sin. And Christ, God, still, he knows every single one of those thoughts. It plays like a movie for him probably. He knows every thought we have ever thought, ever. 
It's kind of scary when I still think about it. And the fact that he knows that, and he knows the evil, vile, disgusting things that have gone on in our brain, but yet he still chose to save us. That gives God glory. That is amazing. That is God's mercy on full display. I I often think back to, uh, I think it was Hosea, where uh, he was told he had to marry a a prostitute. And then uh, the prophet Hosea, he had to marry a prostitute. God wanted him to marry a prostitute. And then he went out and married her. And she kept running away and cheating on him and doing all these horrible things against him. What was that a representation? I'm glad I'm not an Old Testament prophet. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> but they, they, they went through some crazy stuff. But that was a rep- representation of God and Israel, of how God was with Israel. And God, what did she do whenever she kept running away? God's like, go get her back. Go back and get her. That's a representation of God and Israel. And really, God uh, and the rest of the world, when you really want to break it down. I know the context is actually about Israel, though. You know, God set his love on Israel, set them apart from everybody else. And what did they do? They kept running away and breaking his commandments, not listening to what he said. Then God would have to go back, save them, bring them back in. And it was just a process over and over and over again. He was drawing that illustration. And he does all this. I've often kindled it when we sin against God. It's kind of like our wife or husband is constantly cheating on you every day. You know, uh, it's heartbreaking. It's probably heartbreaking. It really is. The fact that, we love God and we are his children, but yet when we do disobey him, I can't imagine how that feels, but yet he still forgives us. It's awesome. So what is our action in this? Well, Romans 12 verses one through two, I thought was a great place to, to figure out what our action in all this is. How do we submit to Christ as Lord of our lives? Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice as a living and holy sacrifice which is your spiritual service of worship and do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of god is and that it is good and acceptable and perfect that's how we submit to god and that's just one of many answers i would say but submitting to god is presenting ourselves as a living and holy sacrifice for him. God, your will be done. Do whatever to me that you need me to do. I'm in total submission of to you. That's presenting yourself as a living sacrifice. And honestly, that's the true meaning of worship right there. It even says that this is our spiritual service of worship. So how do we do this? James chapter one, verses 22 through 24. But prove yourselves to be doers of the word, I'll say that again. Prove ourselves to be doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. So be doers. Don't just be hearers. It's kind of like that analogy that Jesus said when he was like, remember when Jesus said, take your, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, come share your yoke with me. You know, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. But Jesus said, you know, he, he, he's going to take that yoke for us. And he's pretty much going to be carrying along with us. He's, we're we're going to be in that yoke with Jesus together. He didn't say, I'm going to carry your yoke while you stand off to the side, you know, and do whatever. He wouldn't tell us his yoke is easy, his burden is light, unless we were right there with Jesus in that yoke. He's the one doing all the work, but we're still under that yoke with him. 
We're not standing off to the side saying, good job, Jesus. You're carrying our yoke for us. You know, it, it didn't work out that way. So be doers of the word, not just hearers. So you see, acknowledging and submitting to Christ, Lord, uh, Christ as Lord is what we should be doing. And it gives, in, in everything that we do, give glory to God. That's another way we submit. In everything we do, give glory to God. I don't care if it's going to McDonald's and buying a cheeseburger and saying, thank you, Lord, for providing me with this cheeseburger. In everything you do, give glory to God. Paul said it best in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Now I'm going to read you one last passage. And this is going to be long. I'm not going to lie. I want to read. <laughs> but I'm going to read you Romans chapter 8. Okay. Um, in, in this chapter, and this is kind of, picking up on where I want to take things later on when I come back. I want to read you Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 to me is probably the most, that's not even a word, but the greatest explanation of the gospel, period. Besides reading it yourself throughout Jesus' life in the gospels. I think Paul summarizes everything that we need to know in here so good. And especially how we know Christ is our Lord. So this message, this chapter is going to be received pretty much three different ways. Either one, you're going to hear it, you're going to read along with it, and you're going to feel very edified because you know that you are a child of God. And it's just going to resonate with you. You, you know it, you love it, you're going to feel it. Two, it's going to go, it could go in one ear and out the other. You know, you got other things that are more important to you. Or three, you're going to hear this, and for the first time, you're just going to feel like you want to be a part of this, because you never actually were. So like I said, three different things could happen reading the scripture. I'm very clear. Once again, just to reiterate, either you're going to feel edified, and you are going to resonate with it because you know you're a child of God. Two, it's going to go in one ear and out the other. Or three, you're going to feel convicted by it, and you're going to want to be part of this kingdom. And whatever it is, um, I just pray that the Holy Spirit works through this reading of Scripture. So Romans chapter 8, starting from verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who walk according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh, but those who walk according to the Spirit set their mind on things of the Spirit. For the mind that is set on the flesh is death, but the mind that is on the Spirit is life and peace, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it can't even do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. 
However, you are not in the flesh. If the spirit of God really dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So brethren, we are under obligation, but not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body and you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba. Father, and that word Abba, that's an affectionate call in the Greek. That means Papa, Daddy, literally something like that. It's an affectionate call that we call God our Father, our Daddy, our Papa. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, also heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If we indeed, read this, this is key, suffer with him so that we may be also glorified with him. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing, the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that he in hope that the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but we ourselves having the first fruits of the spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is not seen is not hope. For who hopes in what they can already see? But if we hope for what we do not see, we with perseverance eagerly wait for it. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we don't know how to pray as we should. But the Holy Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the heart knows that the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. In other words, we don't even know how to pray the way that we're supposed to pray. We don't even know how to confess the way we're supposed to confess. So the Spirit does it for us because it knows our heart. Continuing on in verse 28, and we know that God... We know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. 
And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What are we going to say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us. He delivered his own son over for us. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? That's us. We are the elect of God. God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Jesus Christ is he who died. Yes, rather, he who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Think about that. Jesus is at the right hand of God, interceding for us, vouching for us. Can you imagine that? I can't even imagine Jesus saying my name but yet he's interceding to the Father on our behalf. It's, it's, uh, it's amazing. I'm, sorry, I'm getting all emotional here, but it, it's, you know, you just don't feel worthy of it, right? But that's the love of God. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, just as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are considered sheep to be slaughtered. That's us Christians. But in all these things, we were over. Overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will ever be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our Lord, who we submit to, who will save us, who will redeem our sinful bodies, and we can be up in heaven with Christ, glorifying the Father day in and day out. I can't imagine. You know, I got one last, I know I just read an entire chapter out of the Bible. I got one last verse. I want you to dwell on as we get ready for this holiday season and all the things that are going on as we keep our focus on Jesus and we do everything we can to glorify him. And we try to remember the message that it was that we celebrate Christ Jesus coming to this earth to live as a man, to complete the law that we were never able to complete, to die for our sins, to bear the full wrath of God in our place and to be raised back up because the sacrifice is acceptable as we dwell on that, dwell on this verse in this hectic holiday season. I 
I know family drama happens a lot during the holidays. Don't get me wrong. I'm, I come from a family of uh, seven, so I know exactly how it goes. Philippians 4, 8 through 9. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is good, if there is any excellence, and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and the things you have received and heard and seen in me, Paul's talking about himself, the things of Christ that people saw in himself, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Bow your heads with me, please. Oh, dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for allowing us to gather here today in your name, Lord. I pray if there's anybody out there, Lord, that does not know you as Lord and has not submitted to you yet as Christ, Lord, I pray that they, they make it known and they get down and they bow before you, Lord, and confess you as that and their mind is renewed that they are baptized through your spirit, Lord, and they are reborn from above, the exact meaning of what it means to be born again, reborn from above, Lord. I pray that they hear that message and they are forever changed, Lord. I pray if there's anybody out there that knows this and it resonates with them, that they'll spread the word out, Lord, to anybody. Lord, I pray for this church right here. I pray for everything that they're going through, through the the rebuilding process of the wall and the tree. We don't know your exact plan that you have for this church yet, Lord. But I know that this church believes in the Bible and believes in your word and they believe in you. And I pray, Lord, that you would just keep their path straight on your plan for whatever you have for them. And through all the stress and the trials and the tribulations that we go through as a church here, as we go through this rebuilding process and everything that's happening, Lord, that you will just keep us strong and keep us glorifying you as we're nailing in boards or cleaning out sanctuaries or moving pews. We're just glorifying you as we do it, Lord. Thank you for all you do. In Jesus' name we pray.